Hello and welcome to another edition of the Godfrey's Law Real Business Solutions Podcast. I'm your host Brad McDonald and today I'm joined by James Hodcraft, Employment Law Specialist. Welcome James. Good morning Brad. It's great to have you back on the podcast, you're a repeat offender. Yes, I've done one or two of these with you, haven't I? It's been, yeah, it's been, been a wee while so it's great to have you back on board. Um, James, today we are talking about all the employment law updates in 2023. Well, when I say all, maybe not all, but the, the bulk of uh, updates that employers may have missed this year, and there have been quite a few, uh, and it can be hard to keep uh, up to speed with all the changes because they come fast and furious usually. Um, and you're going to talk to us today about some of those uh, main changes, aren't you? I am, yes. I think uh, one thing you realise when you're practising uh, in, in these areas is that there are constant changes and you can never know it all. So yes. it never hurts to keep yourself abreast. Uh, there are great resources like uh, the employment.govt.nz website that you can browse through yep. to see what uh, some of the current changes are. Great. Yeah, fantastic. And I think before we sort of, I, I let you loose, so to speak, uh, on these changes, I think maybe we start at the start, the fundamental building block, and, and what's that from your perspective, James, for employers out there to get right from the get-go? Well, it seems remarkable, but um, a written employment agreement is often a problem for employers. We see plenty of cases coming through uh, Godfrey's where employers have operated employment relationships on verbal understandings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's timely to think about uh, the employment agreement the fact that it is a requirement that there be a written agreement uh, that is stipulated by the Employment Relations Act 2000, but uh, not only uh, from the point of view of it being a statutory requirement, when disputes arise between employers and employees, the lack of a written agreement uh, makes it very hard to untangle some of those disputes. Yes, that's right, and that, and that generally goes badly for the employer, in my experience. <laughs> Given that the obligation sits on the employer to have that written agreement, yes, it almost certainly does. Yeah. Uh, the the other issue too, of course, is it's not sufficient merely to have a written agreement. It might be that uh, an agreement has been borrowed. I've certainly seen refashioned agreements uh, that all have similar foundations. Uh, but you must have an agreement which is suitable to its application. It should be tailored to your business mm. and your employees. And, of course, that's where the use of professionals such as uh, the team at Godfrey's is uh, invaluable because our experience can make that a very simple, yes. fast and accurate process for you. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I certainly know over the years the amount of agreements I've seen come across my desk and, you know, the names of the employees are not right and it's the job description not right for the role and, you know, they're all higgledy-piggledy and look, I accept employers are often trying to do their best to get these things done so it's great they've got an agreement but often they're not always fit for purpose and they don't always have the right clauses in them because um, there are, uh, are clauses that are mandated by statute that must be contained within an employment agreement and that changes from time to time. So there's a lot to keep abreast of, there's a lot to get right, but that is the fundamental starting block that you must get right. Yes, and picking up on on your point there that there are changes, um, Mm. sometimes employers will execute a very nice employment agreement at the beginning of the employment relationship, pop that in the bottom drawer, but then as time goes by there may be statutory changes, but there could also be changes in the nature of the employment relationship, uh, which require updates to the agreement. 
A good example uh, would be the changes to sick leave. By now, I'm sure most employers are unhappily aware that <laughs> employees are entitled to 10 days of sick leave, not yes. five. Yes. And there are still many employment agreements floating around which stipulate the five days. Mm. So that's an example of a change in statute which has now rendered that previous agreement template you might be using as slightly out of date. Yes, and there's also... I mean, there's also I mean, minor, I'd say minor, but important things like, you know, the uh, I still see health and safety uh, referring to the previous legislation, um, which has been replaced in 2015, uh, but still refers to the old Health and Safety Act at work. Yep. Privacy Act is another example. Yes. Uh, and that's not only in employment agreements. Many letters come through still referring to the Privacy Act 1993 rather than 2020. Yeah. So uh, be aware of those things. They're not fatal. Um, yes. Of course, if a dispute did arise, it's likely that um, those those clauses would be read as if complying with the new mm. um, the new regulations. Yes, yes, James. I think there was a um, important change. I think it's important um, to to get out. Um, you might be able to talk about um, in terms of the extension of a P- PJ time frame for a particular type of personal grievance claim. Yes, historically, um, the the time frame that applied to raising personal grievances was 90 days. That largely remains intact, but there's been an exception for sexual harassment-based personal grievance claims in which the time frame is now extended to 12 months. Uh Interestingly, um, Section 65 of the Act makes it a requirement uh, in your employment agreement to have information about employment dispute resolution uh, and to notify in that area of the employment agreement the time frame in which grievances may be raised. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very specifically required by that section of the statute that any employment agreement that you may be entering into with any prospective new employee now yes. should uh, make that distinction for sexual harassment-based personal grievances. Right. Um, and uh, that would be a, a timely thing to update along with those other smaller uh, and more minor uh, issues that we just spoke to. Yes. For the employers um, listening to this podcast, James, how do they go about um, implementing or incorporating these statutory updates with their employees? What, what, would the, what might a process look like? Well, with a new employee, it's going to be pretty simple. Mm. You will uh, make sure that your employment agreement is current uh, and that it is fit for its purpose. Uh, We can assist you with that if you need some help. Otherwise, as mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there are great online resources like employment.govt.nz where you may be able to glean some of those key details. Yes. For existing employees, uh, it may be that you would circulate an update memorandum to the agreement, which Mm -hmm. could identify those clauses which are now updated. Yes. Uh, It could be executed by both employee and employer, and it will be considered as a component of that original agreement without having to replace the entire agreement. Right. And I think the key element is that, which which is implied in what you've just said, but is is the consultation piece, which is, here's a proposal, this is what's happened to the law, this is what we're proposing to do about it, here's the proposed update or variation or addendum uh, to your agreement for you to review. If you've got any questions, let us know, but otherwise, um, if if you're comfortable, sign and return to us. Thanks very much. I think, yes, the consultation's important. Uh, Well, not only is it sort of required of good faith um, and Mm. reasonable employer uh, behaviour, but... It also gives the employee an opportunity to 
turn their mind to the agreement and mm-hmm. whether there are any issues with it that they would like to discuss, yes. which could include something as simple as a, a pay rise. For example, uh, people may or may not be aware that the living wage recently increased from mm-hmm. the beginning of September uh, to $26 per hour from what a previous level of 23.65, I think. Right. That's not a mandatory thing. No. Uh, but it's often sought by younger employees. Yes. And I think that it can be quite a feel-good uh, thing for employers who can confidently say we're paying the minimum wage mm. where they can afford it. Obviously, that's not always the case. Yeah. Can I just jump in there? I will toot our own horn because we're living wage accredited here at Godfrey's Law, <laughs> uh, which, you know, I, I'm proud of as a business owner and an employer. Um, but just to make the clear distinction that the living wage is different from the legally mandated minimum wage, isn't it, James? Correct, yes. yes. The living wage is optional in a sense. Right, right. Although the fair payment, uh, you may have heard about fair pay agreements, which are all moving their way through bargaining processes at the moment yes. and will affect industries such as um, hospitality and, and cleaning and, and those sort of large group, unionised, low-wage um, yes. industries. So I, I'm not a, a, aware of the hospitality one reaching any um, final stages yet, and of course it may be with a change in government, which we're all expecting, um, that they may actually go away. Yes. Uh, but something to keep 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 your mind open about. Keep on the radar, yeah. And just talking about the, the minimum wage, um, that obviously increased uh, on 1 April this year, I believe. That's right. Yeah, and that's um, now 22.70 per hour. Very good. Yeah. Rounded up to 23. <laughs> Rounded up to 23, oh, there you go. It's a safe place to be. <laughs> well, who knows what will happen after the election. That's right. um, so anyway, okay, so that, that sort of addresses... Um, you know that minimum wage and the the the, um, the distinction with the living wage, which I'd encourage all employers and business owners out there to investigate. If you if you don't know about that, go go online and, and type in living wage New Zealand to find out what all that is about. Um, so James, one of the other things I'm really interested in, it's always been an area I've loved, is something called heat of the moment resignations. What can you tell me about that, and what might have changed there? Yes, uh, the law was fairly established in New Zealand mm. for a very long time uh, that if an employee downed tools and in a fit of rage and stormed out uh, saying, I with quit. A, with, a, with a cloud of expletives and <laughs> That's right. shove your job and stick it and put it in your pipe and smoke it and all I'm that sure sort of stuff. I'm sure we could all, all imagine those colourful scenarios depending <laughs> on the facts. But uh, yes, <laughs> those sorts of emotionally driven resignations where uh, perhaps the following day or a couple of days later the employee returned with their tail between their legs seeking Mm. to have their job back. Yes. Because there was always an obligation on employers to double-check with employees and not to simply accept the emotional resignation and hang their hat on it. Right. Uh, But there was a change. Uh, The change didn't occur this year. There's a change that occurred occurred more than a year ago. Right. Uh, And the Employment Court... uh, Chief Judge uh, Ingalls, uh, essentially turned the proposition upside down. Mm-hmm. And where there is a, a foolish or emotional resignation mm-hmm. that, an, that an employee communicates to an employer, as long as that communication is clear and it's unequivocal, mm-hmm. the employer is entitled to rely on it. Mm-hmm. So by clear and unequivocal, we're looking for an employee who will perhaps with the expletive, say, I quit. Yes. Or I resign. Stuck your job, I'm out of here. That's getting a little greyer, isn't it? Yes. 
Yeah. So the employer seeking to rely on that resignation does need to satisfy themselves and, and would indeed need to satisfy any um, adjudicator in the future yes. that there was a clear communication of resignation. Right. Uh, ideally, that might actually come in a text message or the employer may just follow up in a text message or email just to get it in writing Yes. Uh, because uh, that avoids the he said, she said scenarios. Mm-hmm. But what it does uh, essentially is that if an employee then brings a claim for unjustified dismissal, yes. the, the burden is now on the employee to prove that the employer created the scenario in which they resigned, yes. coerced it, so to speak, yes. um, which is what's known as a constructive dismissal. Yeah. And they're very hard for employees to prove. Yes, because as you said, the burden of proof falls to the employee to prove, but for the employer's action, they wouldn't have resigned, essentially. Essentially, and yeah. the, the case law is very high threshold on that. It has to be quite an extreme set of circumstances uh, that employee will had to put up with, which drove them to the resignation, mm-hmm. not simply a bit of a cold shoulder or, you know, a feeling yeah. that the workplace was unwelcome or that they were being um, shoved out. That's not not going to reach the threshold. Right. Okay. And I just think it's important um, just to jump in there with respect to these heat of the moment resignations and, and relying on a resignation in what we call the heat of the moment, um, that every situation is fact-specific and dependent. Uh, and and this is, um, or what you're talking about, James, is for information purposes only and can't be considered uh, legal advice that covers every scenario because there's slight differences with every situation, isn't there? Precisely. Every single scenario would be um, considered on its facts. Yes. And to that end, I would encourage any employer that's faced with a situation like that who's uh, intending to rely on that resignation to keep some very accurate notes at the time that it happened. Yes. And a trick I like to use uh, to record notes is to send an email to yourself. Uh If you draft an email of all of the key things that have happened and you send it to yourself, that is then time and date stamped. Yes. And it it couldn't be criticised as something that had been um, conveniently prepared some time later. Yes. Good point, James. One of the things I do, um, slightly different but along the same lines, uh, is I do a voice memo on my phone, I record it, and then I email that to myself. Yes, very good. Yeah. Uh, voice memo feature is in everybody's pocket these days, and yes. you can very quickly um, record all of those those key things that have happened, and, yeah. and uh, you have it date and time stamped. Yes, brilliant. Okay, so that, that covers probably that, or what we can today in the, the, the confines of the... Well, oh, well, no, he's, he's shaking his head at me, listeners. That's good. No, one more point. You go for it. For one, one more topic. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, a bill before Parliament at select committee stage after its first reading uh-huh. to restore the 90-day trial period to uh, businesses with more than 20 employees. You may, uh, may or may not be aware, but it was reduced to only apply to businesses with 20 or fewer employees. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, that's 20 or fewer employees at the time that the contract was entered into so yes. uh, it could apply to an employer with more than 20 where the more than 20 has come sometime later yes. uh, but the key point I want to make here is the the way these trial periods work uh, I've been speaking to a few of um, our clients recently who, who still grapple with um, the process yes Trial periods are very strictly uh, interpreted, and if you want to be able to rely on that 90-day trial period to dismiss a staff member, it's very important that 
the time that you're negotiating the employment agreement, you bring it to the attention of the employee that there's going to be a 90-day trial period. Yes. The Covering em- letter, for example? Precisely. Dis- discussions around the role? Don't yep. simply rely on the fact that it's included in the contract as being adequate disclosure. Okay. Yep. Bring it to the attention of the employer. It might be in the offer letter. Yes. Uh, and uh, then make sure the employee has adequate time to to take advice on the contract. Don't mm-hmm. simply give them the contract and accept it back later that day signed or okay. even the next day. I, I would really encourage employers to give them an opportunity to read it, consider it and take advice on it. Uh-huh. But Next uh, issue that a lot of employers face is that you won't be able to rely on that trial period if the employee has already done a trial shift, for example. (laughs) And so many times, and I understand it, I'm an employer myself, you've got a staff member who looks like they can probably do the job and you think, why don't you come and do a half day with us? Why don't you come and do a few hours on the job? Yes. Let's see if it's for you. Let's see if... Try some eggs for us. Yeah. Yeah. Just come and pour a few pints yeah. or pour some concrete. Let's yes. see if, if it works for you. If it does, we'll give you an employment agreement and it includes a 90-day trial period. Well, a situation like that is going to render that trial period invalid. Mm. So don't do it. The purpose of the trial period is to, to give people that opportunity to evaluate how they work with each other. Yes. Always execute the agreement before the employee does any kind of trial shift. Yes. Great advice. And just one thing I want to pick up, given that we're talking about, um, I guess, a mixed bag or cornucopia of issues in 2023 and potentially beyond, um, is what what you started with is that there is some suggestion that, that for example, if certain parties uh, get into power after the election this year, that they may look to reinstate um, trial periods to employers who have more than 20 uh, employees, uh, which would take the law back to what it was a number of years ago. So, bit of ping pong there. We'll wait and see. Um, I'm also aware, James. I think there's some discussion around um, in terms of entitlement to sick leave, bereavement leave, etc., starting from date of employment and doing away with the um, with the, the sort of stand down period that you currently have, don't you? The six month stand down period applies for the time being, mm. uh, and I, I suppose very much like the fair pay agreements, people should probably just. Um, park park their thinking, wait yes. for the outcome of the election yes. and then periodically check on that employment.govt.nz website for current awareness. Yes, yeah, okay. No, that sounds good. And I think it's important also to keep, you know, just typically around 1 April each year the minimum wage goes up. So to sort of keep abreast of that. That seems to be a routine. Yeah, it seems especially to be a routine, in times of inflation. Yeah, <laughs> sort of bake, baked in um, now by the look of it. Let's uh, not to say it will automatically go up each year, but I think that would be a fair assumption, probably, um, cost of living crisis, etc. It's quite a good time, I would suggest, for employers to align their performance reviews with that because yes. they're likely to have an obligation at the beginning of April to increase pay, yes. uh, especially for lower-waged workers. If you time that in with a performance review, you might go a little higher than the minimum wage or you might go to living wage and you can tie it all in nicely. And yes. maybe um, maybe the, the pay rise looks bigger than it, it than it actually is. Yeah. Talking crystal ball stuff because I'm interested in, in the future and what it holds, um, none of us truly know, but there's also that discussion uh, around um, uh, uh, you know, restraint of trade provisions only being applicable to people who, people who earn over certain um, you know, salaries per annum, which is an interesting concept, isn't it? I think that um, these, these concepts are with merit. Yes. A lot of restraint and trade clauses and contracts are unenforceable. 
Yes. Uh, because you exactly. can't, you simply can't stop people from earning a living. Yeah. Um, radiuses are often found to be a lot smaller than employers might have included in contracts, mm-hmm. and it wastes a lot of um, time in, in, in trying to enforce those or trying to, to work. So any limit on that, I think, is a welcome thing because it helps people understand where they stand. Yes. Uh, for the time being, you've, you've certainly far better off to have non-solicitation clauses in your agreements yeah. um, so that you can really prevent the mischief of losing customers or staff when somebody leaves. Yes. Rather yes. than having them compete with you, which is probably less of a concern. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. That's a re- that's a really good insight there, and something I'm sort of interested in keeping keeping an eye on because that's been a sort of a hot potato for many years. Uh, Holidays Act, two thousand and three. Now, I believe that's um, still going through the review process, and and I can well understand uh, why that would be the case, given that it's such a cumbersome and clunky and huge and complex piece of legislation. What, what, what do you think we might see there, James, crystal ball stuff? And I, I know oh, crystal ball. I think, uh, I think if Labor somehow remain in power, they will work their way towards the five weeks um, with their influence from their um, green friends. Right, yes. Uh, to to, to a more, more holidays, which is the last thing any employer wants to hear, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what I hope uh, that, uh, that might happen is that there might be a little bit more structure around calculating... Um, alternative leave days uh, and, right. and so on. Uh, payroll systems uh, and software exist to yes. try and make that easier, but inevitably they struggle themselves with their own calculations and formulas, yes. uh, especially for those employees that that might have varying um, shifts every week and um, varying work patterns, yeah, etc. Precisely, yeah. yeah, it becomes very complex. Yeah, and that's I think really why I just signalled it, um, given this sort of discussion of a mixed bag of of employment-related um, concerns or topics, is that it's an area that I still see many employers getting into trouble with with their employees, uh, and and obviously an area you need to be very careful to make sure you're compliant as best you can in terms of your payroll software and, and what you're doing and how you're doing it, because... The awards, as we know, James, can be significant and go back can go back up to six years if you get it wrong. So that's pr- pretty major, isn't it? Well, it sort of crosses my mind as we discuss this. Uh, not only can those awards be quite substantial, but tying back into the original topic of not putting the employment agreement in the bottom drawer. Yes. It may be that people start off as casual employees, and then that employment relationship changes uh, over time. And one example of a way it might change is everybody may start off as a, a casual employment relationship, mm-hmm. doing the occasional shift, and then before before anybody really notices, a pattern's emerged where um, yes. the, this person's working every Tuesday, for example. Yeah. And whilst casual employment is not defined in the uh, statute, um, it, it has been found by the authority in the court that casual really does mean irregular and um, and casual. There's no patterns yes. to it. So it'd be, be very worthwhile employers considering whether or not mm. any casual agreements they have are still fit for the purpose. And you, yes. can, you could work that out by looking back at a few payrolls to look for patterns. Yeah. Uh, there's been a decision uh, in the employment court uh, last month against an employer who was investigated by the... Um, was it Labor Inspector? Labor or? Inspector, beg your yeah. pardon. 
mind blank there. <laughs> <laughs> the Labor Inspector uh, sought to investigate the nature of these workers who were largely recorded as being casual workers. Uh-huh. And because the employer had treated them as casual workers, they hadn't received time and a half working on a public holiday, for instance. They hadn't right. received a day in lieu entitlements. And I know that some employers um, would prefer to consider their staff as casual because they don't have to pay those entitlements. Mm. Uh, but often that will come back. And as you identified, Brad, it can be many years later yes. uh, when that comes back to bite. Yeah. And the problem with something like that, especially for those employers who are companies, is that those liabilities can be sheeted home to directors. Yes. Uh, and to other parties involved in the payroll. So yes. don't, uh, don't walk that tightrope. No, yeah, and look, I think that's some really good um, advice and information there, James, is that things often change over time. It happens slowly or sometimes imperceptibly, um, but to go and check your arrangements and whether anything there may have changed and sort of, you know, if, if you do have an issue, front foot it, talk to your accountant, talk to your lawyer, get some advice and work out if you've got a problem. If you think you've got a problem, you possibly do. And it's far better to front foot it than be hit with it out of the blue, you know, a year, two, three years down the track when things are growing seven different heads uh, and, you know, claims for penalty interests and legal costs and so on and so forth. Correct. And referring to this particular case in the Employment Court, um, it was a challenge in the Employment Court. The Employment Relations Authority had directed a, a penalty to the Labor Inspector of uh, almost $8,000. Right. Then there were costs in the authority. Yes. I think in, the, in this case they were quite light. They only came to about $1,200. Uh-huh. But as Brad said, if you get ahead of these things, you can avoid that frustration of penalties and costs to a large degree. Mm. Uh, they can be disproportionately high to the issues in dispute. Yes. But they're very real risks. Mm, indeed. Yep, no, well said. In closing, James, I want you to cast your eyes into your crystal ball for 2024 uh, and, and beyond. And what what things do you think employers should look out for next year and, and maybe into the future and, be, and sort of be aware of anything on your radar you think uh, merits a mention? Well, I probably only to repeat what I've said. I think these are times where we seem to be having a lot of change. Yes. Um, a change in government will probably cause more change, <laughs> uh, even if that's undoing some of the change that's already occurred. <laughs> so it is definitely worth uh, keep keeping up to date as best you can. Yeah. Listening to this podcast is a good way of keeping up to date. Yes. And uh, have a scout around on the internet. There's less tolerance now for ignorance because of the mm. availability of information. Mm. As an employer, I really do encourage payroll systems take away the burden of trying to do all those calculations, having spreadsheets and wage books and all of those antiquated things. Yes. Just use an intermediary that can do all the tax and everything for you. It's absolutely money well spent. Mm. Mm. And the records are available on demand. You have an obligation to produce them on demand under the Act. So I definitely recommend people engage with a payroll intermediary, set up those systems, keep abreast every few months of the developments um, yeah. Staff are necessary in many businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, they bring with them you know, the, their own benefits um, and personalities, but they also equally bring these obligations, complications, and sometimes some um, disputes and disadvantages. So. Yes, yes, no, very, very good point. And, and I, I'll just reiterate once again, because I think it's, uh, it's really good uh, information and advice, James, that there is a lot of information online, as you've just pointed out, and less tolerance for ignorance because... It is out there, and employment.govt.nz is a good starting point. 
uh, if you've got questions or things you want to understand a bit better because there's a lot of good information on there, isn't there? Very good. Well-resourced. Well-resourced, yeah. Excellent. Well, look, thank you so much, James. I think we'll wrap it up there today. There's a lot uh, for listeners to take in. Um, If anyone wants to get hold of you, how do they they get hold of you to have a chat about these sorts of matters in the employment sphere? Look, please email me. Um, The email address is james at godfreeslaw.co.nz. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time once again, James. It's been great to have you back on the podcast, and I look forward to welcoming you again on in the future. Thanks, Brad. Awesome. Thank you once again to our valued listeners for listening to this edition of the Godfrey's Law Real Business Solutions podcast. I'm your host, Brad McDonald, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Many thanks. Thanks.